Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. I was a little apprehensive about approaching Erin Monaghan to talk with me for this podcast. I thought perhaps what with having three hours traffic on the Abbey stage every night, playing one of the baddest, meanest men ever written by the Bard, I thought living with Richard might be all-consuming and a full-time concern. And it was, and it is, but what becomes apparent from the get-go is how Erin relishes this dream part. It's a wonderful listen. Aaron is such easy company and gives of his conversation in such considered, insightful, modest measures. He talks about finding his way into Richard, the everyday armour he clothes this character in, the physical aspect of the role, the honest seduction of an audience, and the turn on a word in that fourth act. We go on and talk about the provoking and consoling nature of comedy, the love of the work, the expectation of excellence, and the lessons learned when you underestimate a play. Enjoy this podcast. Aaron Monaghan, what attracted you to the role of possibly the greatest theatrical villain of all time? I think just that, that he's possibly the greatest theatrical villain of all time. I've been in love with this man for years um, since college. Um, Andrea Ainsworth, who works in the Abbey, who's the voice coach in the Abbey, um, she taught me voice in college and um, one day she gave me this speech um, from this play called Richard III um, and I you know we had to work on it and kind of work through it with Andrea and kind of half perform it and stuff like that and um, the more I read the play the more fascinated I became with this character um, villains are always just great fun I mean all the great actors say that you know it's great you think of like you think of somebody like Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger playing the Joker in Batman, who is, you know, a great villain, and the amount of fun that they have with it, and how much we love those characters to watch. Um, it's just eating and drinking in in one part. It's great. It's 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 a actors always look for great journeys within characters, and he has this incredible journey. Um, and it's lovely to be uh, as an actor to be loved as a character and then reviled, you know, minutes later. It's it's a great challenge. So, I mean, it's just, it's a dream of a part to get your teeth stuck into. And have you said through all those years and, and say with the immediacy, I suppose, of this research and this rehearsal and, and playing it night after night, have you figured out who he is and what he is? Yeah, um, I suppose the, the, the more I do, the more research we did, I've been thinking about him a lot over the years, and kind of you see when you're when you're thinking about a part at a distance, it seems quite obvious to you. Um, in a kind of a two-dimensional way, he's he's kind of a Machiavell. Uh, he's a great villain, and then when you start actually kind of you suddenly get cast in the part, and you kind of go right. I have to take on the mantle of this. I have to kind of step into his boots and make this person a, a human. You, st- you know, that's where the research comes in. And I suppose at a part like this where it was a real human being who was very different um, to the fictional version that Shakespeare has created, um, that gets a bit scary. Um, you realise that you're kind of playing almost a caricature and then you suddenly get uh, into rehearsal and you start repeating these lines time and time again. And emotional stuff comes up. You kind of discover where this character is emotionally. Uh, I thought at the beginning of the rehearsal that I thought he was a man without a conscience and maybe without a soul. Uh, beforehand, before rehearsals, I kind of thought he was a man who was bored, uh, jealous, all those things. Um, who was very useful in the days before. Uh, this play has happened, you know, during the War of the Roses, and suddenly now is had no use. I mean, I remember talking to uh, Marty in 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 the show about it in months leading up to it. And he kind of went, "It's like when the peace process happened up the north, and all these, you know, paramilitary um, guys suddenly had no use." And kind of went, "No, it's all about politics now, and this deep resentment and, and uselessness that they must have felt. So I found that interesting, but as the run of the play has gone on and as as the rehearsals um, went on, I kind of discovered that he was a man who kind of was hated by his mother. That's my take on it, and, that, and, and his family, and that that's all true. He was, you know, so many people talk about how he looks and 
that must have an effect. And by the end of the play, I kind of feel he's not a man who doesn't have a soul or doesn't have a conscience, but he's a man who doesn't realise he has got a conscience and has got a soul. So by the time we get to the end of that play and um, he has that dream, that very foreboding and terrifying dream before the battle the next day, um, he says, Oh, coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? And it was kind of in that that I realised... Oh my God, he does have a conscience. He mightn't have realised up until that point, and he's a man who's kind of maybe goes into battle knowing his own fate, and maybe a bit kind of relieved at that, um, relieved at the thought that he's going to die. That's my take on him. That's what I've discovered on him uh, doing it in in the doing of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you're talking about, I suppose, his parentage, um, because he sets out from the start. He sets a stall out from the start, and he he blames and uses his physical disability as his fuel for his anger, which is meant to justify all his actions. Yeah. And then, you know, when you, when you think about it, I, you know, I feel he's hiding behind that. But mm. then there's that idea that that art, that question of could he be could he be born bad? Yes, possibly. I mean, he certainly uses his disability. He manipulates people with his disability. Um, I always feel when I come out and do that opening monologue that when I get to the bit where he uses so many, even within that first monologue, he uses so many ways to describe himself. Deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I, as I halt by them. Um, and even before that, he uses a few other phrases. I always feel when I get to those lines, I feel like I'm quoting other people. I kind of feel like that's what people have said about him. So, um, but is that can that justify his actions? Do you know that no, anger? Absolutely not. I mean, um, it could to him, uh, the character. I feel the uh, the way he was certainly used and manipulated in the actions before the play, and then the kind of discarding of him now that we're in prosperous times, that's all set up in that opening soliloquy. That might explain his actions, but certainly doesn't excuse it. I and feel as if he's playing us from the start. He's saying, yes, you're saying that he's paraphrasing everything he's ever gone through. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just feel as if uh, as honest as he is with the audience and we're in on all his plans. And, and you also want him to succeed because yes, he's... Yeah, he, you do, yeah. He is likable. Yeah. It's It's funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the intriguing part about why why do we love villains, isn't it? Um, That you never want to make, like, I I feel anyway, I never want to judge a character. Um, So the idea of excusing his actions is kind of, that's not my business. It's really not. Like, and I, but and on the other side of that, I never want to justify a character. I never want to kind of go, I think it's, I think any actor who tries to justify uh, a character's goodness or badness is kind of losing the point a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily feel that he's playing us from the beginning. I actually find that opening monologue is quite um, honest. He literally sets up the whole play. It's 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 and it's the only Shakespeare play that opens with a soliloquy directly to the audience, where he says, "This is what's happened." Um, I'm not particularly happy about it, and I'm going to do this, and this is how I'm going to do it. And then he keeps on checking in and saying, "Seeing that, like, he, I think if he was playing the audience, he'd be dishonest with them." And I don't. I think soliloquies, by their nature, are just honesty. It's funny after the Lady Anne scene where we see that he's manipulating her, and then he turns around and says, "Did you see the, the way I'm?" In? Which is a very honest statement. I think. We are seduced by him and we are charmed by him. Um, I think a lot of that's down to Shakespeare's words and even the frankness. You know, there is something wonderful about when a villain comes out and says, yeah, I'm doing this. We kind of go, right, fair play. Uh, My job, I think, as an actor is to kind of make the audience um, hear the story. It's not my job to make them fall in love with me. Hopefully they do fall in love with this character and if I'm doing a really good job in that I'm letting the play move through me hopefully by act four they'll kind of go oh I feel reviled by this character I've backed the wrong horse that's very little to do with my performance I think I think that's everything to do with 
the way Shakespeare has structured it. And I think there's a very definite reason that he's opened the play with his baddest, meanest, most villainous villain talking directly to the audience. Mm. He's already taken us into, into his confidence. And we love that. We, as, as, as audience members, we love knowing something that other characters on the stage don't, you know. He has been described as a monster in a monstrous world mm. um, and those he keeps company with uh, seem to be capable of overlooking his history of violence. So that probably says a lot more about them than it does about him in some ways. And there's, there's a lot of that we've, you know, obviously made edits and cuts to the play, but there's a lot uh, that has been left out of it. I think that's brilliant. He's a monster in a monstrous times. Uh, so much has gone on politically. Like there's there's lines that I don't say in the play. I, I say to Elizabeth in in this version, let me put in your minds what uh, what you are. This is the Queen Elizabeth. If you forget uh, with all what I have been and what I am, and then he goes on to say, you did this and you did that and you you did this, and even Clarence he fought against Edward at one point. And then kind of he, you know, and then went back onto their side. So every one of them has got dirt on their bibs. Do you know what I mean? Um, none of them come out clean. And he's kind of, I think that's the, that's the thing at the top. He's kind of going, wait a minute, we were all killing each other twenty minutes ago. All this thing, and now that every, everyone's suddenly happy and everyone's made peace, and he's not happy with that. He, that's why he calls it this weak piping time of peace. And he's kind of going, I had a purpose. And maybe maybe he's that type of character who is uh, formed by action and not necessarily peaceful action, uh, but by, you know, he seems to thrive well in war and in antagonistic um, uh, circumstances. But then suddenly everything's fine. We've all forgotten about our, you know, Margaret actually is, is an interesting character in the play. She keeps on bringing that up. She kind of goes, you did this and you did that and you did that and it's all going to come back in your They're all kind of happy to forget about it. And he's also very similar to Margaret, able to kind of go, I'm not forgetting about this. And because I'm not forgetting about this, I'm going to use this to my advantage and get what I want out of it, which is the crown. Um, so it's an interesting one. And I, I, I not here to justify it, but I'm kind of on his side for that reason. You know, it's just very easy to be uh, to sweep things under the carpet, um, and he doesn't seem satisfied with that. So for me, there's a little bit of a nobility in that as well. I'm thinking uh, you may not be able to justify your character's motivations, but can you understand him? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, I do. Like I said, you you're always looking for a way in. I was having this conversation. I was doing a workshop on Sunday. Um, and we're talking about, you know, character and, you know, w what it is. And people are saying, well, it's shared. It's, 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 it's only ever from your own experience. So and I was going, well, I've, I'm playing a character who kills a lot of people and, murder, and I've never done that. So you have to use your imagination or you have to find other ways in. So things like, you know, the idea of a, of a terrorist or a paramilitary terrorist uh, being released and no longer been, you know, saying you're not relevant anymore. It's all about politics now, um, or other ways in. You, you you do look for other ways in. So I do understand his motivation. Not for a second um, excusing it or justifying it, but you do. I, I I. It's really funny. This is a kind of off the uh, uh, root story, I suppose. So I I was I was coming from the gym last week. <laughs> Sounds terrible, um, and I was uh, sweating, and I was in a, I was in a tracksuit, and I was walking into a hotel to meet a friend of mine, and they wouldn't let me in the door because I was wearing a tracksuit, and I felt really I, I was so exhausted I didn't feel angry I was just kind of going I couldn't be bothered and I didn't that's the type of thing that ordinarily would kill me like really cut me to my core uh, as a, as a as a person and it would stick with me for months really I'd find that really hard. but just the, the, the play and the work uh, at the moment is, is just so kind of exhausting that that's where my focus was but I found myself on stage that night when I got to those lines in that opening monologue where he's, he's saying about how he appears and I, as I was saying earlier on I feel that sometimes he might be quoting things that people have said to him I felt this sense of injustice that it only happened to me two hours ago, and I just let I just let that sit there for a little bit, and it came out in a slightly different way. So, it's I suppose as an actor, you're always trying to find ways. Like I said, I don't know what it's like to be in a war and to 
not kill people or to kill people or but you find other ways in other parallels and that can be little things or it can be leaps of the imagination but yeah I can definitely understand um, his motivations for everything he does in the play because that's that's what your thing is as an actor what's my motivation is it very difficult um, playing Richard and uh, to vanquish uh, the memories of previous Richards you might have come across I mean how do you even uh, keep that at bay um, I think that's always a difficult one when you're playing a big famous part and I've done the done that a few times where part of it's just holding your nerve in the time leading up to it and thankfully once you get into the room if you're lucky enough you'll just be so preoccupied with the work that you won't be thinking of it I didn't, I, I suppose if I if I was playing this part five years ago I probably would have felt a lot more nervous about it because um, it, like, it's such a great part and so many great actors have played it and made it their own and um, kind of made it an indelible impression on um, for generations after them. Um, so yeah, I, I probably would. I didn't on this one, to be quite honest, I, I read a lot about previous performances and uh, that for me gave context uh, in terms of research to how I might play it. Because um, I had loads of ideas and I knew that I wasn't going to land on anything until I walked in on to rehearsals. I, just, I wanted to go in with as much armour as possible um, to be able to work with Gary and the designers and the rest of the actors and kind of go, I can do this or I can do this. Um, so in terms of other Richards and other people doing it, I kind of really welcomed it. I re relished it, relished the opportunity to read and research about them and steal little things, you know, going, oh, that's a really interesting idea. and. Um, kind of opened up uh, lines for me and little situations or, or, or scenes in the play kind of going, why did that person do that? Oh, okay, they were coming at it from that point of view. So it it, it, it gave me a very, uh, a very wide context for how the play operates, um, reading and uh, discovering how other people played the part. I really enjoyed it. So I didn't feel intimidated by it at all. I don't know if that was the question, but yeah. No, it, it was more like, I suppose, in trying to avoid it, in, in some ways it probably invites itself. It, it, it's when you talk even of being handed um, a script by Andrea in college, like, it, it's just everywhere. It's, it's it is, not yeah. like, it's not like any other role that you, you, you can purposely, I suppose, avoid. This is, uh, you know, there's just no avoiding it. And I just, no. and I don't, and I think in, in, in avoiding it, it probably makes more trouble for yourself, do you know? Yes, of course, yeah. I, I, I remember we had that in rehearsals where, you know, I used two sticks and that actually wasn't my idea. It was, it was, uh, it came out of a very obscure um, idea that David had aesthetically as a way to get into something and then it, it that literally within the space of five minutes turned into a suggestion from Gary about using sticks and I was reticent about it because I was kind of going because that's quite similar to the way the famous Anthony Scherr thing um, but it worked they really liked what I was doing with the stick they really liked it kind of felt like that was right for the production and I'd say for about a day I was really reticent to continue with it because I was kind of going God, it's, I don't want to feel like I'm stealing from Anthony Scherr um, but exactly that I came to the exact, exact same conclusion to kind of go we could spend a lot of time avoiding things mm. here that um, in the hope that you're trying to show the world that you're not trying to copy or steal or anything like that and waste a lot of time. If something felt right, that felt right, you know, and um, there's no way we can, you know, the very nature of the fact that I'm playing Richard, it's going to be my Richard. Um, there's no way I can kind of emulate anything. It's just the fact that I'm doing it. Uh, so I kind of, for about a, about, uh, a day, I kind of deliberated with that and like I said I got into the room then and you just get you get on with the work and you get too busy worrying about other stuff um, as in you get too busy worrying about the work to worry about unnecessary mm. stuff like that you know. Um, will you talk about that physicality because I'm mm. sure obviously as you say you know y you you battle with it for a day and you make the decision to go along with it and that is obviously going to change um, you know, it, it will change how you handle the text. It'll change your performance. I'm just curious as to, I yeah. suppose, how you build that character from those 
tiny kernels of suggestions? Yeah. Um, who? Uh, I suppose. I think the voice bizarrely came first. I'm not even sure what the voice is, but I think it was the delivery of certain things that I knew that I was going to be quite precise and playful with. It's just, you know, I've been repeating these lines for a year now. Um, more. Some of the lines have been repeating for like 15, 20 years. And how do I do it? So I had an idea of how the, how the play worked or his journey through the play or what scenes were about and what, sentiments, what um, lines were important, um, what actions were important and stuff like that. In terms of the physicality, uh, like I said, I really went in with nothing. I had loads of ideas, um, but I wanted to discover it on the floor. Uh, we played for a couple of days with lots of different things, just me throwing stuff out. And then it was on the last day of the first week um, where it was myself and Gary and David um, David Bulger, the movement director, uh, uh, we came in to just do a bit of playing around and we played around with a lot of kind of notional ideas and there were certain things that they wanted me to do in terms of we just need you to deliver a certain thing of a character. I was all for kind of going, I don't want to tie anything down until the last week of rehearsal. But I got a sense from them that they needed to kind of see something. So... Um, where the physicality came from was me kind of listening to what I think they needed to see and what they needed in order to progress with rehearsals, in order to be able to block scenes and in order to be able to, you know, create the production that I was kind of going, and I can still, I still want to be able to experiment within that. Um, they, they wanted a hump and they wanted a limp. I'm not saying that in a pejorative or reductive way. That's what they needed to see, and I was kind of going. Well, within that, I don't want to be restricted. Uh, in, I wanted to feel athletic. I wanted to feel I was able to move around fairly easily. Um, so I was kind of going. If I put on a hump or a limp, I don't want it to be a prosthetic, but I don't want it me to be just doing it with my body. So I had this idea that I would tie up my leg so that I could put my full weight in it. I, I don't know how to describe this in practical terms. Um, my leg and my feet are held at angles um, on one side as is my shoulder they're stuck in place um, if I had been just creating that I would have had to sustain that for the show what I wanted to do was for that to be stuck there me not to have, be able to put certain amounts of weight to be able to press off it to jump um, to be able to move quite quickly without me having to drop it or anything like that so I just suggested that we kind of work on a shape that they liked, that I felt I could sustain. We taped me into that position and we just started to play around. And within 10 minutes, they were really happy and we called an early day to rehearsals. We went, that's the shape. And then we added the sticks on top of that. Um, maybe, I think it might have been, maybe it was that day or the day after, I can't remember. And so once I knew that that was the shape that they were happy with and that was the form that, they, that we were going to progress with, um, it just became about well, how fast, how slow can you can you move, and how can we make that uh, fit the purpose of the language, uh, fit the purpose of the scene? I suppose I mean like, can I make that fast? Can I make it slow? Can I um, make myself more vulnerable? Can I make myself more powerful within those uh, restrictions? And yeah, we I suppose we found it within a week. Um, we found it within like a day really when we started to focus on it and then that just became the thing and within that we kind of found a range of motion and a range of but I'm really intrigued by the beginning of this question which you answered asked me ten minutes ago sorry um, which is that it did begin to shape how I delivered the language as well um, those two go really hand in hand and it was kind of fascinating that it it changed the delivery it slowed bits of it down it's, it sped bits of it up it um it gave a different intention to certain lines and to certain scenes. So, but it all kind of melds together. It all goes hand in hand. It's all experimentation, though, isn't it? I I am intrigued by um how how fast it came together, and I suppose and and how um relaxed you were, I suppose, about allowing that to come together. As you know, you kind of thinking you'd like it in the last week of rehearsal or something. I have a question about sustaining that physicality, mm. but. Before that, um, I want to ask you if these lines have been percolating in your head for a year and then best part of 20 years, 
the notions and the instincts that you had as a college student, have any of them remained for you? Like, were you so off the mark when you maybe read this text first and then you think, God, or, or are you like, was there a through line of, um, was there a through line, I suppose, that you got right, that you thought, yeah, I've held on to that? Um, yes and no. For the most part, no. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I would only say that because I haven't been uh, rehearsing it or doing it. Um, I haven't had to think with that level of focus or clarity um, with an amazing team behind me putting it into a production. So, no, I, I, uh, there are certain things that have stayed with me always. Um, but no, for the most part, uh, for the most part, no. But that's all, I, I think, uh, just to say in terms of that question, your question kind of suggests that I've got it right, and I, I really don't think I have. Um, I would love to do this again in a year's time and in two years' time after that and in five years' time, and I think I'd come up with a completely different version of it. And for me, like it always happens within the production that you start to kind of see what you're not doing. For me, anyway, like no, no night is exactly the same. You're kind of going, I'm, I'm understanding that line completely differently now. And that's, for me, what it should be. So I think by the end of this process, I think I'll be playing a, a very different role than when I started, and I think that's the way it should be. So 18-year-old or 20-year-old Air Monaghan in Trinity would have uh, done a different performance of this? Without a doubt, yeah, yeah without a doubt. There's certain, there's certain lines that have always rung true for me, particularly in that last soliloquy, and I could argue that like that's how I feel they should be done, but I could also argue that I don't know how else to do them as well. I, I, I don't think you should ever fall in love with one particular one interpretation or one method of delivery. For me, that feels feels boring on one level, but it feels a little bit false. For me, for me, delivery and interpretation kind of has to happen truthfully live in front of the audience, um, or it certainly it should aim to be. Of course, we're kind of replicating what we've done and what we've agreed in a rehearsal room and in a tech and all those things. But within that, that there has to be a certain amount of truth. And I find for myself, I won't say for any other actors, but I find that if I'm trying to chase a interpretation or a delivery of a line that I said two nights ago that went down really well, I'm actually not really asking the question or I'm not really truthfully saying the statement. So I feel like I have to throw everything out the window every night and be prepared to do new things. I'm going to follow my thinking because uh, I'm always aware that I, I forgot to ask the question that I asked. Um, the question of, I suppose, sustaining that physicality oh, yes. throughout. You probably uh, have to switch. You switch uh, your balance, you know, each night or something. Yeah, I, I switch sides. So the physic, the disability, for say, uh, is on one side every night. Uh, last night it was on the left hand side. And tonight it'll be on the left-hand side. So every two shows I switch it over. So it'll be on the right-hand side for tomorrow and the following night. And does that change your thinking? Like, um, does it change your blocking? Does it Not really. keep you on your toes? It, well, yeah, it does. I mean, I think that's the... It doesn't really change the blocking. Um, it, does, it certainly doesn't change the thinking. It changes the blocking slightly in the fight, but in a way that I have to work around. And I think that's what I meant when I said... I wanted the physicality to be something that was st stuck in my position because say, for example, like my, my foot is my, my, my foot is at an angle and my leg is at an angle. If if that was the real Richard, that's the he would have to figure out a way of fighting with exactly that thing. So I have to find out a way if there's a different blocking or something like that. I just have to negotiate my way around it without thinking about it because that's what he would have to do. See that that's easy if you're doing it one way. I, I'm trying to th I, I know um, as an actor who, yeah. is, who has who's thought all of this through but there's something about the fact that I suppose and it has to be natural, so natural that you don't have to think about it yeah. but it, it feels as if it's um, it, it's an additional thing to think about every second night um, and yet it can't be because your mind is elsewhere. Yeah, exactly that. It's 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 not an additional thing to think about. It's an additional thing to deal with. Um, it's a restriction. It's exactly what I kind of what I wanted. Like uh, I have two sets of shoes in this show, so I have uh, I have a left pair and a right pair. So if the phys physicality on the left 
um, one of those shoes is stuck. The toes are stuck, curled up, because my only my only my toes touch the floor if the physicality is on the left hand side, and then I swap over to the other pair on the right hand side. That just means that I can't put my heel on the floor because that my leg is stuck in that position. I don't have to think about that. I just have to deal with it in the same way that he would as a, as as a, as a disabled person. So um, I just have to negotiate my way around it. I have to sword fight my way. I have to like lean up against the wall or do all those things. Um, that's I'm not having to think about it because that that is the character, and the audience get to see me manage that because that's the way he would manage it, or is the way he, he would have to manage it. So. Um, I think that's kind of what I meant when I wanted it. If I was sustaining that myself and having to, uh, now the, I suppose the downside of this is when I'm off stage, like I have to get dressed in the wings because if I strapped my leg and got and, uh, and got dressed in my dressing room, I'd have to come down two flights of stairs, which is quite difficult. Um, so I come down in my underwear and and do this at the side of the stage. But it also means I don't go up to the dressing room. I can't really put my weight on both legs until the play is over. So so there's that, but it means when I go on stage, I'm not thinking about it, I'm just working around it. Uh, and that's all we do as actors, we work around obstacles. Uh, we act around obstacles, really. Um, so that's what it is. In terms of sustaining it, to go back to that question, um, it's, I mean, yeah, it's difficult. Um, I try not to think too much about it. Uh, uh, I get physio every week. I get a lot of needles stuck in me, and I put my feet on ice and ice my shoulders every night. I uh, uh, stand there in a bucket for ten minutes while I scrub dirt of myself, and um, that's it. That's the gig, though, you know. And I think I'm looking after myself by switching it up every two shows. Yeah. Um, something occurs to me as you're talking there. Wanted to ask you: Is there a sensitivity involved when you ha when you're portraying a character with a physical disability? Mm. Yeah, there are always. I've I've played a number of characters now with you know varying degrees of disability. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what what it is. Uh, there is a sensitivity about it. I, you can be oversensitive about these things as well. I don't feel it so much on this one because. I think that's such a small part of his character, bizarrely. I think his actions, uh, as depraved as they are, um, his manipulations, his his thoughts, uh, the things he says, uh, the way he thinks, I think they're so ghastly to so many people. I think that's what preoccupies people's minds. So I certainly don't feel any responsibility um, to be too sensitive about it, and I think I think you know in a, in a modern society people are people are less uncomfortable in seeing it now, you know, and I think that's that's a good thing. Where I do feel uh, a little bit sensitive is when I hear the amount of things that people say about him, you know, about they throw up his deformity, and they keep on using that word deformity, not disability, deformity, mm. um, in such a damning way and uh, in, in you know as if it's a huge disadvantage and so it does funny things to my head where I kind of go okay well I'm gonna use this thing that you think is a disadvantage to my advantage and I'm gonna I'm gonna get my own back on you by doing that by using this very thing which you've damned me uh, about so it's interesting it, it gives me a lot of food for thought you know, in other roles, I have kind of felt the responsibility to um, be accurate about it. But at the end of the day, it's we're doing theatre. It's a play. It's a fiction. Um, and I kind of hope that the production overall is sensitive enough to all those issues and that it's not just my responsibility. It's 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 the whole uh, production as a collaboration. It's their responsibility to be sensitive with these things. And I, I think I think it has been. I hope so anyway. The humour in this production, can you talk a little bit about that and, and where the limits are of that and where you ever... Uh, yeah, are there limits to it? And, and are you allowed to break them for a traditional kind of uh, portrayal of it? Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Um, I'll talk about the humour first. Uh, I might come back to that then. Um, the humour... I, I think this is one of the funniest plays ever. I've always thought that. 
I love the idea that it opens with a baddie saying, I'm a baddie and I'm going to do all this. Watch. And what I love about um, playing this character and about some of the... I know Shakespeare was an actor as well. You can feel that in parts like this. So he woos Lady Anne and he's given you such a brilliant scene that sometimes now when she goes off, all I have to do is turn around to the audience and they laugh. So he's got a really great sense of comedy. Um, and humour as well, it's... Humour is very provoking. It kind of lulls us into a false sense of security and then it can suddenly kind of go... It can it can make you ask very deep questions of yourself, particularly when this play, because you're going to go, ah, it's all a bit of crack. Oh, my God, he's so funny. Oh, my God, he's so charming. Oh, my God, those people are kind of... Uh, they're killing each other and they're, you know... And he's doing all these things and he's manipulating them all and that audience are watching it all happen as co-conspirators. And then Shakespeare pulls the rug. And it happens in the fourth act. I mean, he, he, the whole struggle is about getting to the crown. And he says, he gets the crown and he says, uh, thus high by thy advice and thy assistance is King Richard. It's crowned in this production. It's seated in the original text. And the next word is, but. <laughs> and it's on that word that the entire um, play changes and it stops becoming funny because he starts talking about killing the kids. And I think that's the point where it be. So I just think it's kind of. Um, it, it's amazing. Like, I always kind of feel uh, I have a huge amount of respect for, um, for comics, for comedians, stand up comedians. I'm fascinated by Tommy Tiernan and I'm kind of. Um, very fortunate to kind of have gotten to know him a little bit over the years and for me in the last uh, five years I've been really really obsessive with his material say but in a way that doesn't make me laugh anymore I feel very consoled by it um, I feel I feel very provoked by it as well I always kind of feel like I'm laughing at this and he's got a great turn of phrase or it's a funny situation but it really does make me think in a way that um, makes me feel comfort or makes me feel uh, it comforted in that like I'm going, oh god thank god I'm not the only person who thinks that way um, or he's asking big questions that I don't feel necessarily I feel are been asked by politicians or by you know I don't know religious people or anything like that so I think humour is a, a thing that all of humanity understands and it's a very very it's it's a it's something that um, it's something that joins us all together in r laughter and relief, but also um, it can provoke things as well. It's it's a brilliant tool. Um, it's very close to tragedy as well. Obviously, you know the the difference between that, that famous thing. The difference between comedy and tragedy is is time. Uh, what is it? Comedy is tragedy with with plus time. Um, laughter being very close to uh, to grief it's all those things so I think I think Shakespeare plays with that brilliantly in this play he gets everyone laughing and then makes them gasp within a couple of words um, so I think that's I think it's fascinating I really do I've forgotten the, the no I guess I was thinking just about I can I guess I can see all of you in a rehearsal room stretching the limits of that sure. humour that you find in the text. And yeah. I just wondered, um, are there limits to it? That's all I was thinking. Is Shakespeare breakable? I guess it isn't. I, I know it isn't, but I suppose I'm thinking, is there, is there a stop sign that you went, oh, actually, we, we, can't, we can't bring it there. We, you know, the line is this and, and actually it means that. And so something in in a politically correct way or, or not even politically correct way i guess it might be straying too much from the line oh, or yes, yeah, you know course, that yeah. you could build and build oh, uh, that that always happens yeah. yeah i mean yeah that happens a lot and uh, again it's always a negotiation where you kind of go that happens a lot in runs as well like not just in shakespeare plays where you kind of you forget what the original intention behind a moment is or a word or a line or an action is and you discover that oh, oh, the way I do this, if I pull a funny face, it's that's funny. Or if I do this thing, or add a big pause there, or make the pitch of my voice higher or even lower, um, it gets funnier and funnier and funnier. And it happens all the time. And 
I suppose that's again it comes back to collaboration with good director and good actors and a good team having to negotiate where the world of the play is and where the range of humour is also as well like, I'm terrible one I I've, I've a terrible fear of cheapness <laughs> it sounds terrible and I'm probably in the wrong company for this sorry Gary because um, uh, we 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 do love cheap gags and I've always loved cheap gags but just I seem to be getting older and kind of going oh is that really really cheap and I have to be convinced of it so um, and maybe maybe I'm just getting conservative uh, about what I what I deem to be cheap uh, there's there's that type of thing um, to be going too far with cheap gags happens a lot <laughs> happens a lot in this company I think because we're, we're always having fun and then Hopefully, for the most part, we we uh, we pull it back. Hopefully, wanted to ask you about direct address, as is the way with, with yeah. Shakespeare's soliloquies. And I just wondered, is that helpful to you as a performer? Because the moment you step on stage, you're confronting an audience yeah. in, in in a way, and and you're harnessing their attention. But I wanted to know, as a performer, is that empowering to you? That that um, connection with the audience and that in some ways you don't have to ignore them that you're like okay you're in this with me yeah. um, I wouldn't say it's empowering I, it's absolutely necessary it's, uh, with this play like I said I keep on saying it it's the only Shakespeare play that opens with a director dressed to the audience he he needs to, get, to let people know he's the narrator of the story you know um, I do find it fascinating I wouldn't say empowering, and I, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I manipulated ever or anything like that, but I do find it fascinating that um, people are so willing to go with you. But that's that's the genius of Shakespeare. He says, look, I'm going to tell you this. If I, if I was... I suppose how do I do it is that I go out and I look at people in the eye every night, and I do talk to them as if I'm talking to them. Um, Sometimes I stray away from that, and I I kind of get into a kind of a performance thing, or I start looking generally, and I'm not looking people in the eyes, and I can feel it, and I can kind of go. That creates a distance. Um, it's a very very slight, subtle difference. But if 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 I do not let those people, I found this with all the Shakespeare plays I've done. I've always tried to kind of literally just talk to people because that's what Shakespeare's asking you to do. He's saying, talk to the people and tell them that this is what you're doing and this is what you're thinking. Um, so I find that it's a very easy and difficult thing to do at the same time. So if I don't concentrate on relaxing and kind of literally looking at people in the eye, um, I'd love the lights to be up a bit more so I could see more people. But it is so important. It's It hinges so much in this play that I'm able to uh, look at people, tell them exactly what, what's going on, what I'm thinking, what's going to happen. Um, and it's amazing. I wouldn't say it's empowering because I kind of feel like that might sound like I'm getting off on it or that I'm manipulating or something like that. I find it fascinating every night that people kind of go, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. And and I always kind of feel a little bit like terrible for them because I'm kind of going, in two hours' time, you're going to hopefully hate me. Now, half an hour after that, they might feel a smidgen of sympathy for me because, you know... I say in the first soliloquy, I'm determined to prove a villain. And I tell them that quite plainly. And then in the last soliloquy, I say, I'm a villain. Um, I talk a little bit less to them in that one. I let them hear me talking out loud and I don't necessarily look at them as directly. But it's it's a strange one. I could talk about soliloquies for hours and I, I don't think anyone will ever get... It's a, such a strange, beautiful relationship. Um, I feel... I feel, I wouldn't say empowered, I feel very privileged by it. It's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, once you get over the terror of it, it's a gorgeous place to be in. Does it take, when you talk of the terror, does it, because I suppose you look them in the eye, does that not take, diffuse a bit of that te terror? Oh, 100%. No. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, it, it, it does. It's, it's. Um, I think if, if I was terrified, I would be looking around yeah. kind of generally and not really looking at people, but it just kind of go, it's the easiest thing. It's like going up to a person on the street and asking them at the time. You look them in the eye and you ask your question. It's the same thing. And you realise that there is no great mystery to it. it. It requires a big amount of bravery to get over the terror. That's it. Talk to strangers. That's it. 
Um, I wanted to take you back to the beginning and ask you what led you to become an actor. Mm. Uh, was it in your background? No, not at all. Um, not at all. I was going off to do architecture. It's all I ever wanted to do. I ended up kind of accidentally in a play in the year I was going off to do, uh, going off to college. Um, I got this opportunity to do a professional play for about six months and I decided to take a year out of college to not go to college and be able to tell my grandkids that I was once in a professional play. And I'm sure loads of people have stories like this, but I ended up kind of discovering that there were these things called professional Irish actors that you could train to be an actor. I didn't know this at all. I didn't know you could do it in Ireland. And meeting three professional Irish actors in this play, uh, I ended up auditioning for Trinity, not really knowing what it was about. Um, and just suddenly discovering that that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I did it and I can't really imagine doing anything else. It's, it's, I, I don't even mean just acting, I mean, I mean this, work, the, whether it's directing or writing or collaborating, devising, whatever it is, whatever it is I end up doing, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I love it. Um, it's defined my life, but it had absolutely no bearing on my life before I was 18 whatsoever. You don't remember, there wasn't a time that you remember enjoying performing before you you went with that show, that first show? No, I did, I did, I did some youth drama for about two years beforehand and that was a hobby. I loved it. I loved it with an absolute passion. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, but no, never sang or anything like that. Or, or no, not really. I, w I was in awe of great performers. I used to like, you know, love uh, certain musicians and stuff like that. And I go, and I remember emulating them, and you know, as every kid did, I'm sure, in their room when they were a teenager. But that's as close as I ever got. And was there a conversation that needed to be had, say, um, about going to Trinity, but also, say, post-Trinity, um, that, that this was going to be a career? Yeah. Um, like, there was obviously a risk involved in that, but yeah. was that a conversation that you, um, because it wasn't in your background, did you have to kind of say, no, this is, a, like, I, I can do this and I can make a life out of this? Was there any convincing... You, you mean need? with parents and stuff? Yeah. Um, or did you think you could make it? You, no, I didn't. It, yeah. there, there wasn't a conversation, uh, first of all, because I didn't think any of those things and I had no knowledge of what a career might be, might look like. I had a sense, obviously, when it was in Trinity, kind of go, okay, that's how actors survive and that's how they do this and that's where they work and they may do bits and pieces of this. I had no sense that that was available to me and it was going to be a risk. I was still doing it. Um, there wasn't a conversation really with, with, with parents because as much as I didn't understand the job or I this this career, this going to college came so out of left field for me. It came out of left field just as much for them, even more so. So they didn't really know what I was doing. Um, they didn't really have a sense of it. Um, my mum did worry for a little while. Uh, I think I came from a big family, you know, and there was so much going on. And I was actually the quiet one in the family that my mum always said that she never really <laughs> uh, thought, no, that's not right. Not that she, she thought about me all the time. I was overprotected. Um, but like, there was, a, I, some, I just faded into the background a lot of the time and did my own thing. Um, and I say that, ma'am, in a completely unsympathetic way, if you ever listen to this, um, with not feeling sorry for myself. Um, so she didn't, I don't know if they really thought too much. I think they kind of went, oh, he's going to university. Okay, that's good. He's going to Trinity. That sounds really respectable. They didn't really have a sense of what it was I was doing or if I'd be able to make a career of it. And I was kind of happy enough that they didn't really ask those questions. Um, my mum worried for a little while when I came out of college if I'd make a career of it. But I got some really, really lucky breaks, you know, very soon after coming out of college. Like I spent, I think it was 22 months here on the trot, fairly soon after college. Um, and I, like, I mean, that's, that's a great start. And then went straight into Druid after that for pretty much the same amount of time. So I think she stopped worrying about me now. Or no, she still worries about me if I'm going to make money and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I don't know. We got busy worrying about other things, I think. Was there a specific moment that you remember, um, I suppose, labelling yourself an actor that I, you know, I'm legit now? Um, I think there must have been. It, it didn't come for a long time. It didn't come for a long time. I was definitely an actor in terms of I was working a lot and I was doing all those things. But I don't think, I don't think that came until I was like 
maybe about six or seven years ago, I was kind of going, no, I'm an actor in, in that I'm making a career of it and I'm, and I'm committed to this. I was always an actor in that I was working and doing stuff like that, but it's a really, really brilliant question, Isaac, because uh, I think a lot of people would, and I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years where I think a lot of people would be afraid to call themselves an actor or an artist or a writer is a big one as well. And you're kind of going, well, you're doing all those things, but there is something about the vulnerability of the work, the nature of the work is quite vulnerable in itself, but also the inconsistency and uh, the scarcity of work can make people very uh, reticent to say what it is that they love doing. It's it's a really interesting question. I have a couple more questions. Sure. I'm going to let you go. We're, we're going a little over time. I'm, I'm really interested in uh, the mental health, I suppose, of creative people. Uh, I always feel that there's um, this expectation for creative people to always get it right and always mm. uh, to produce exceptional work all the time. And I wondered, do you kind of buy into that, that expectation? I certainly feel that. Yeah, I really do. And I, um, I think a lot of the a lot of the great artists, a lot of the great actors and writers, but certainly a lot of the people I work with a lot and love and respect, they feel that responsibility a lot and I certainly have felt it and it's something that you have to guard and mind. I've definitely, I would never say I was depressed or anything like that, but I've definitely come close to throwing in the towel because I've been unsatisfied with the work I've been doing. Um, artists, actors, uh, writers, musicians, creatives. Um, we are collaborators by nature. Uh, if we're not allowed to create, um, it kills a little bit of our soul. <laughs> it just does. It's, it's. I suppose it's the same in any job. If what your purpose, if you're not allowed to do what your job is, you, first of all, you should love your job, and we do. We like you'd have to love it to do what you do. We give so much of our time. Look, we're not curing cancer or saving the world or anything like that but we do give so much I don't turn off at 6 o'clock and go home after rehearsals I'm still up all night thinking about it and you're still the constant worry of it it does take a huge amount of energy and uh, mental warfare on your own self and then to kind of go into a show that you're just not happy with that first of all you're criticised and there's no, there's no bigger critic than your own critic so I've done I've done shows in here that I've been really unhappy with personally. They might have been great successes, um, but I I kind of feel ashamed of my performance in them or ashamed of the work in them, and that it's very you know uh, you know the theatrical community are a very kind community as well. They can be very hard on each other as well, but um, it you have to remind yourself to be to be kind to yourself. And a few times, like I said, I've nearly thrown in the towel a few times where I've kind of gone. I can't go out in front of an audience and feel that my work isn't up to scratch. By what, by what measure are you measuring that for yourself? Um, y your own sense of uh, your own sense of artistic merit, your own sense of your own capability. Sometimes it, sometimes it's, sometimes it's something that you kind of feel you can't measure up to because you're just not right or you're not good enough. And then sometimes it's another, it's outside factors you feel like. The director, the producers, the other actors, or something like that, um, the set, or the production values, whatever it is, they are not allowing the show to be the best it is or you to do your best work. And you can feel very inhibited by that, um, very embarrassed by that. And I've had both of those situations. And like in, in very recent times, and you kind of go, why am I doing this? I'm doing this to pay bills. I'm I'm not if I'm not loving it, I'm doing it to pay bills. I'm doing it to pay the rent. And you kinda of go, it's not worth it to pay the rent. And I've had to have really difficult conversations with myself uh to to continue. Um and the only way you find a way out of that is to take a little bit of artistic control by doing your own work or to throw yourself into the next thing and try to be a bit better about it or really weigh up the options of whether it's worth continuing so uh, I suppose the antidote to that would be kind of go well when you get the next offer of a job you have to make sure that you really really do want to love it and not just to do it for the money 
because I often say this sense, this 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 job doesn't make sense for, to do it for the money. Uh, I'm not belittling that, and I think we're paid quite well actually in uh, uh, comparison to other jobs in other uh, countries. Um, but you, I don't know, you have to put things in place to kind of go. I have to do it for the for the love of it. Uh, and as as my career goes on, it's more and more about that. It's about working with the people that I love working with and getting a sense of satisfaction out of it. Um, I've put on, even in terms of this show, I've probably worked twice as hard as I did on the last couple of shows and I've probably got paid the same. That matters nothing to me. It matters nothing to me because I love this project so much. I love the people involved in it so much. Um, and I feel that, I feel the work is good and I feel that the work is going to get better as well. So I don't know, I don't know what the, what the, mat, what the, what the, what the yardstick is for it, but it's a sense of your own integrity, I think. That's what it comes down to. That That's how you measure it up, I think. Final two-pronged question. Sure. Um, your work to date flows over pages and pages. I, I couldn't even print it out. I was kind of saving trees, but of all the roles you've played, which stretched you as an actor, and then which Ooh. taught you most as a person? Oh, God, that's an amazing question. Um, I would nearly say... Mm, the first question, uh, which stretched me most as an actor, I could name I could name two or three of them uh, for different reasons. Um, uh, I would say Playboy stretched me because I never think I got it right. I think the second act is impossible to get. I'd love another shot at it again, like ten years later, understanding it in a different way now. This is. A huge stretch in a brilliant, brilliant way. I love this. It it requires so much concentration, so much. Uh, if it feels like you're walking a tightrope, and it, it just feels blindfolded, um, and it's. I love that. I just love that. I love the thrill of going out there and throwing it away. There was a play that we did called Empress of India, which meant a huge amount to me. We did it with Druid in two thousand and six, um, and and here in the theatre festival. And uh, that stretched me because I kind of felt like my work to date had been of a very similar nature, quite loud, physical, um, very Irish. And this was completely the opposite. And I had no doubt that I could do it, but I felt it was a challenge for me to prove that I could do it. And I, I got so much out of it. I learned a huge amount from it. Um, the Walworth farce was a real, real challenge. Like a real, like brilliant, brilliant challenge. Um, in terms of learning things, I think I learned stuff on every, on every, on every job. Though I remember doing Aaron the Pogue here with Michael Murphy, who is my hero in terms of actor and director and person in general. We did Aaron the Pogue, and I definitely started that show viewing the style of it in one way, and by the end of it, I realised that I'd hadn't given it enough respect. Um, the, the, I remember singing, I'm looking down at the stage here as we speak, Lisa, I remember there was a song that the character I sa uh, I played sang, and I remember kind of feeling it was like, well, we're much too, uh, I don't know, uh, we're, we're much too complicated as human beings to deal with melodrama now, that they won't get the, that we won't buy into the sentimentality of it. Um, and even I, even the fact that I said that, that I kind of thought, oh, it's kind of sentimental. No, what we'll get out of this is comedy and we'll get a bit of farce and it'll be a bit bit of a camellia. And it was a big lesson for me in the middle of it. Kind of, remember Michael saying this to me in rehearsal, kind of going, he was kind of going, I think, I think there's potential in this to really, to really move people, genuinely move people. And I'm kind of going, okay. And I trust Michael implicitly. And it wasn't until halfway through the run, and I remember looking, standing on that stage and kind of going, I'm singing this song, and people are slightly been moved by it. Um, and then later on in, in, in the act where, uh, where he, this character that was playing is crying his eyes out that his lover is about to get killed, and he's hearing her sing on the top of the tower. And it's very hard as an actor to kind of go, oh yeah, that's, it's very hard to play that truthfully. But I realised that I wasn't willing to play it truthfully, that I was kind of sending it up a little bit. Um, and I remember just kind of taking Michael at his word 
and being a little bit braver about it and playing it more and more truthfully. And the audience went there. The audience, and I remember kind of going, I've, uh, I've underestimated both the play and the audience. And that was a lesson for me to kind of go, you never, never, never judge a piece of work or never judge an audience too much. There's been other lessons like that over the year, but that's one I can kind of think that I, I learned a lot in the doing of. And I played it much more sincerely um, for it, uh, for the rest of that run. And I thoroughly loved it as well. Aaron, the time is <laughs> upon us. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time. Not it has been all. a pleasure so talking welcome. with you. Thanks, pleasure, pleasure is all mine.